So here we are in the churchyard of St Anne's in Battlefield, celebrating its 250 year since consecration in 1768. It's a medium sized sandstone coloured church, still in active use. The history of this plot of land goes back to at least 1334, when Robert the Squire of Biker granted to John Sergestain, a hermit, a plot of land 200 feet square, together with a lane 20 feet wide connecting the plot with the Tyne, which you can see directly below the church. All this cost Sergestain 40 shillings a year, and the idea was that his supporters would build upon the plot a chapel in honour of St Mary's mother, St Anne. So for nearly 700 years there has been worship on this land, and bodies in it. Even during the Reformation, when the chapel was neglected, burials still took place here. At one point, in the reign of Elizabeth I, it was the centre of an emergency plague hospital, and the chapel itself was damaged when all the houses in Sandgate were burnt down during the Civil War and the siege of Newcastle in 1644. This new church was built to replace the chapel, and remains an active centre of the community, even though there haven't been many bodies buried here for quite some time. So what are we doing here? I'm Dr Alex Lockwood, and this podcast is a part of the deep adaptation programme of events commissioned by the Newbridge Project here in my hometown of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. It's a series of talks, screenings, workshops and artist commissions to rethink our relationship with each other and the planet. My part of this is the Shift and Signal podcast and school, named with the aim to have a shift away from the unsustainable practices in which we've become stuck and offer some signals towards how we might live better with the planet and with each other. There are eight podcasts in all, and six are now live, so if you've not listened to the previous ones, please do go and download them from iTunes or stream via SoundCloud. These podcasts also invite you to participate in physical embodied acts, such as walks, because getting up and moving, but also slowing down and thinking, are the practices we need to nurture if we're going to change how we live, and perhaps how we die, too. It began as an interest from the idea of decay as this kind of really alluring process of something in the transition to death actually finding a new form of life and that decay whilst we think of it as an in disintegration of life it's actually a, a, a point at which there is this really interesting flux and play of life and death in, in this kind of really interesting motion that can then um, it just it's just really um, rife for analogy and metaphor in writing in life and all, 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 all sorts of other things so that's David Spittle and he's a poet living here in Newcastle who's become one might say slightly fascinated with the body in decay and death and as many poets and writers have David is working on a book about the Victorian poet Robert Browning famous for his dramatic monologues such as My Duchess and whose poetry is infused with the idea of death as another form of life. Because this episode of the podcast is about death, in a way, because it's about restoring our soil. Although it's far from being the headlines in the papers, our human civilization is facing the end of soil, which means the end of us. For the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, the UNFAO, their official priority is not in fact global warming, it's not the extinction of species, and it's not any other environmental crisis. For the UNFAO, the single most important thing that we face is the degradation of our soils. Every year, 24 billion tonnes of fertile topsoil are lost, and already around about 25% of the Earth's surface has become degraded by industrial agriculture, deforestation and, let's not put it mildly, greed. That degraded land could feed 1.5 billion people. Put that next to the fact that every day around the world, a billion people go hungry. 
The UNFIO have calculated we've got about 60 years of harvest left, which means that if you have kids, they're going to live to see human civilization crash because of food shortages. And as the UNFIO asked rather prosaically, well, what then? But let's reel it back in a bit and take a slow, leisurely walk around these calm, pretty grounds of St. Anne's. If you're standing outside the front of the church, you'll see a path going down towards a gate and the river. Stroll down the path, but turn left and wander along the path along the gravestones. Come back up and round, stay in this river side of the church, as there's not much behind it, and take a look at the graves. What's the oldest you can see? Can you read the trades? Can you spot the Masonic icons? Who plants the flowers now, do you think? And while you're at it, think of all of the bodies that have been buried beneath your feet in the last 700 years and appreciate what's happened to them and what they've become and on which this grass and these flowers feed. And while you do, let's hear a bit more about the stages a body goes through to become this thing that's so precious to life, our soils. The, there are several stages and basically the, the main one's autolysis or autolysis, which is the breakdown of the cell, which is when the cell has in it a thing called a suicide sac. And I can't, I can't remember the, 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 the biological term for it, but it's basically an element of the cell which in certain conditions, uh, usually when the cell's alive, is used to break down foreign bodies. But in death, the cells begin to what looks like from the outside digest themselves it's a kind of self-digestion but unlike digestion which is an active process it's not actually active with any agency it's a kind of trigger so there's a kind of a trigger of a domino biological thing that is going after life so there's something interesting in there in that there's a ventriloquism of life after death that looks like digestion but but isn't it's this kind of self-cannibalizing so that's like the first stage you've got autolysis course rigor mortis then putrefaction and then the bloat which is when of course like uh when you've got the self-digestion of the body with the cell it releases certain steams and chemicals which and the body swells that's bloat and following bloat you get the purge which is when uh cellular walls intestinal walls collapse and liquid escapes from the body and then the final stage which um, will often be referred to as the decomposition island, is the trace of the body in the soil. So soil is an incredible substance. It can take hundreds of thousands of years for just one centimetre of soil to form from its parent rock. It's made up of inorganic plus organic material, air, water and living organisms, from worms to bacteria such as Mycobacterium vasi, which is, miraculously, a substance under study and has been found to mirror the positive mood effects on neurons that drugs like Prozac provide. Yeah, that's right. Sticking your hands into the soil actually does make you happier, chemically. And soil is bodies too. If you're buried, your body will, as David says, decompose and become itself the stuff of growing things and of great creativity. Um, there's a lot of work in satellites where you're able to see where bodies are because of the um, the chemistry of the soil, the kind of chemical trace that you get these kind of strange skirts around where bodies have been, where the, where the soil has changed. And so I'm trying to think of almost like parallels in text and language to those kind of effects. So like stripping down, uh, stripping down poems, ideas of desire. And at what point does love decay? Is love decay? Is decay the disappearance of desire? And all these kind of things which are like really fruitful. 
So while you've been walking around, I hope you've appreciated how tidy and lush these grounds are. There are some dried dead grasses and verges. That's the council, who seem to gleefully go around spraying herbicide as if it's going out of fashion. But the real positive work done on these grounds is an example of guerrilla gardening. In fact, the daffodils, the borage, the alkanet, those plants with the blue flowers, and tulips, as well as the well-tended privet, is all of the work of Colin Dilks, biker resident and outdoors man, who showed me around the churchyard, but in true guerrilla fashion, did not want to be interviewed. Out of humility and grace, of course, too. Colin is a wonderful gardener and a very humble man. So, flowers, plants, veg. You can't talk about soil without talking about growing things. And in places like this, St Anne's Churchyard, but also where we go next, the St Anne's Estate, growing things is something that tells us a lot about the people we live alongside, about class, about community, and about taking time to notice what makes a place worth living in. When you build up relationships with people, people stop and talk to you. People like seeing you garden. I mean, people love it. It's, it's Britain. It's obsessed by gardening. Even if we don't have a garden, I'm sure that people maybe think about gardening. And I got to know a lot of people. That's Ginny, another gorilla, or rather municipal gardener, who's taken the upkeep of this local space into her own hands. So where are you now? Back at the church doors? We're going to leave the churchyard now and go and have a look at some of the gardening work that Ginny has been doing here on the St Anne's estate. So let's go back out of the stepped entrance of the churchyard onto Bremish Street and turn left. Walk to the junction of Craw Hall Road and then up the hill a bit until you get parallel with the rows of flats on your right. We're going to walk along that path in front of the flats at the top of this big green open space. But we're also going to spend a bit of time looking into the raised brick bed at that corner, which has been planted with some native English scrub flowers. From there, we're going to walk along that path to the right, along the row of flats, and stop when we get to the well-loved garden, both inside and outside the wall, of number 78. I'm not the only person, actually. There are lots of really great people that are doing communal gardening here. There's Geraldine, Colin... I think Vanessa, and I can't remember her partner's name, and then over at Battlefield we have Meredith. Um, so I'm not the only person that's engaged in this activity at all. I don't want to sort of, I don't want it to be like some kind of heroic thing. Um, I like the kind of everydayness of, of having a garden. Um, I don't want to kind of make out that I'm some great like kind of activist or anything yeah. like that. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> but I think there's a real need for people to have a space where they don't have a space and they can talk to one another. Just as you're walking, look out at the daffodils on this open green square that you're passing. You might see missile thrushes and pigeons too, and even Kevin Cosner. We have a quite a, a jolly, uh, funny nickname for this field here. as uh, says people that live uh, around here and you drink in the tanners and they call it, we call it the field of dreams. What struck me when I met Ginny and she took me on a tour of St Anne's was the vibrant caring community that's been fostered here by people being outside of their homes in these public spaces, gardening. If there's no community centre, no cafe, no hut, no benches, then it's in the children's playgrounds and people's gardens where community begins. You're likely at or past the brick bed now ready to turn onto the path to Ginny's house. She talked me through what's in the garden there. So I grow, again, 
quite a lot of native wildflowers. There's quite a lot of them. I learned quite a lot about this through doing some research into the, the northern brown Argus butterfly, which is extremely rare and lives in small co colonies south of here in the Durham magnesium lime scale uh, plateau. It's extraordinary, the whole history of that. You know, Durham used to be a coral reef. It's off the map. I love it. Um, so scabious, um, cerulean, I think it's called cerulean bluegrass, uh, 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 bird's foot trefoil, uh, those kinds of sort of, you know, scrubby wildflower plants. So let's walk on to number 78 where Jenny lives and have a look at her garden. But not only the bit inside the wall, but importantly the bit outside. A whole section. See, what happened here, and that was the thing that started off the first part of the communal gardening here was they pulled up all the hedges there was a lot more hedging here at St Anne's it went right the way around the edge of, of the field of dreams and I just moved in so I didn't I I don't know that but the residents I mean there were issues with it there were problems with antisocial behavior because people could be shielded from the flats and um you know when we're in an inner city area and there are, you know, a lot, there are drug and alcohol problems and, and, and um, but they tore up all the hedges as well. One, there was an issue about safety for residents and that was a, a concern, you know, it wasn't, but also the council, the cuts, they don't want to maintain it. No, they don't, it's, I, I probably shouldn't be too rude about Newcastle City Council, but they unable to maintain to the extent that they could and they pulled up all the hedges just below my garden wall and they put those grass seed down because the pigeons came and ate them so it was just this kind of scrubby muddy bit and I just got out there and dug it up and just started putting plants in and that was it yeah <laughs> and then I started on the brick bed and, that, and then Geraldine came round and introduced herself to me which was really lovely and um, she was like, I really want to start doing some of this communal gardening, but I feel quite insecure about going out on my own. And I was like, I'll come out with you. And that was all she needed was just someone to go accompany her a couple of times. And then you're more confident about being out. Of course, this podcast isn't about the science of soil, although that's amazing. But our connection to the substance and to our lives and communities that are, whether we're aware or not, whether we care or not, dependent on soil. And that's what so impressed me and inspired me with Ginny's gardening. It's a joyous act in itself, but it's also a gift that works with and tends to not only the plants, but what gives the plants their life too. The gift relationship was something that I was really into, this idea that it wasn't a financial... Um, you could give someone a packet of seeds and, and help them dig up some parsnips and you didn't necessarily there didn't have to be an immediate transaction and that that I think was those ideas I think have definitely informed the way that I've kind of gardened both in Biker where I lived for nine years and, and, and here on the estate in St Anne's. And that's important in a place like this what some of us might see as a working class estate that some of us bypass on the way between town and our more middle class suburbs of Heaton or Jesmond or St Peter's Basin. 
But here there are not only communities of people who care about the soil and the landscape, but also the incredible biodiversity, the birds, the foxes, the bats and the insects. Thrushes, thrushes, goldfinches, blue tits, coal tits, uh, white throats, black caps, astonishing. Mm. Wrens, robins, um, probably even rarer um, birds. Um, but it's a really amazing environment for nature. Yeah. As Ginny told me, the type of gorilla gardening that both she and Colin do is for both animals and people. And at the basis of that is her knowledge of soil, of planting and of what makes a rich, biodiverse human and more than human community. But let's walk on a bit and round the corner to see more of this work. So from here, carry on the way you were walking and then turn quick left around this block and then left again. We're going to look at another raised brick bed. It's the one that's laid out in front of the row of two or three shops, a newsagents and vowels, which is now closed. Head there and stop by that raised brick bed. But yeah, I, I am addicted to gardening. If you're going to garden communally and if you're going to put plants in community while I think it shouldn't necessarily be just down to your taste but I think it should be pleasing for other people it is a public space um I wouldn't do anything like kind of crazy or like you know like um who's that gardener who does um Dermot is it Dermot um Gavid the Irish gardener who does really amazing contemporary gardens don't get me wrong I'm not um there are, and again, plants that can deal with stress. She can't be going out like watering. There's no point in um, giving yourself. It's hard enough work as it is, right? Um, and that is the thing I think that, that can kind of trip people up about gardening is it's easy to just dig the whole plot and the allotment, but it's the maintenance that takes time and effort. I think there is a real communality. Um, if, if I think if we do get the gardening club set up here and we can encourage more people to be outside and garden together I mean I don't know I've never done any of that before I've only had like conversations with people who like the garden and like they say oh, oh, oh it's lovely and can we come and, and, and it's lovely and you're like yeah come in come and have a look and mm. people yeah people love gardening mm. so you're at the raised bed now this was cleared by a group of people who ran out of steam a bit but the work is waiting for the community gardening group to get back into the swing of things with or without the council's help but if you look further into what's left you can see some fungi forms of life that weren't apparent when this was all overgrown be careful though there's an awful lot of glass and detritus in this bed which is sad because that's the relationship people often have with these patches of soil nature, as bins. But look in and you can see the beige looking fungi that is similar to puffballs or polyphyletic assemblages and which would excite fungi artist Tilika Markham no end. Yeah, it started with me just trying to find a non-toxic material to cast with. And uh, yeah, most of my sculptures uh, were made with casting and I was using um, desmonite which is a mixture of resin and plaster and I wasn't happy about the toxic nature of it so I started looking at using mycelium and growing mycelium in mold. Tilika's been working with mushrooms, fungi and mycelium now for a while and as she says it began as a way to move away from toxic arts materials. I asked her if we needed to pay more attention to materials such as these 
as what's the point of producing beautiful works with an environmental message if they're actually damaging the soil and environment that they're trying to talk about? Yes, I do. I do think so. I mean, I could make beautiful things, and but there was this niggling, but what am I doing? I'm toxic things or toxic bases or casting with resin, say, and you can produce something that maybe gets your message across and like not polluting the environment. I also feel like I want to work in partnership with plants, living, other living organisms rather than that 100% thing of coming in. Antilica's not the only one. I'm going to leave her here with the puffballs because as you can hear, the line we spoke on wasn't great. But there are also so many other artists working with things like mycelium. We'll hear more about that later. And directly with this thing called the soil. So let's walk a bit now. We're going to go clockwise where we are and around along this stretch of flats and back down towards St Anne's Church, past the children's playing ground over there, diagonally opposite from where we're at now, and then when we get to the street, turn left around the bend of Beamish Street and into St Anne's Close, and then at Tarsit Street, turn right into what looks like scrub ground. There's a park bench there with a view of the Ouseburn, the river and the toffee factory. Stop when you get there. Go slowly as we take in the scenery and breathe in the air. It's really fascinating to think about the soil ecology um, and just how much life it contains. That's Alex Wilde, and she's a socially engaged artist based in Glasgow, who, along with other members of the Open Jar Collective, has been thinking about and working with soil as part of her practice. You know, from the kind of microbial communities to worms to beasties to um you know kind of the history of a landscape so you know a, a soil contains all sorts in terms of memory of you know what plants have been there what buildings have been there you know it it all kind of breaks down and becomes part of the soil so it the soil holds all of that together and it's you know it's kind of there's the quote of a teaspoon of soil has more life in it than the whole life, whole, whole, whole of the planet. Soil, then, is an incredible material, we're learning this quickly, and a truly fundamental resource, as well as a literal home for human and non-human life. For Alex, her interest came initially from the work she was doing around food, community and arts practice. My, in my personal practice, I, I've always been interested in kind of systems, um, particularly kind of food systems, um, and how they shape the places and communities that we live in. Um, and I've worked a lot um, over the years with different community groups, um, sometimes kind of geographic communities, sometimes community of interest around a particular subject, um, and have worked with people to develop ideas about kind of um, how they grow food, for example, and how and, and, and how they do that within their communities. Um, so I'm kind of really interested in using my creative practice to, to make spaces for people to have those conversations, um, using food as a tool for getting people to kind of connect with each other and interact. Um, but also food as a subject matter in terms of, well, how do we begin to grow our own food and what does that mean for our communities and, and how do we begin to talk about the global food system in relation to that? And from there, 
Alex and the Open Jar Collective thought that they needed to go deeper in their thinking about the sources of the food system, the soil. But we began to kind of feel that um, there was perhaps something more fundamental we could tackle. And um, we're all interested in, in growing and, you know, some of us have got gardens or allotments or window boxes uh, and we try and grow our own food. Um, but we thought that actually soil is pretty fundamental to most of that. And in our work with community gardens, nobody really knew where the soil came from. So everybody had built raised beds because that was what kind of was recommended because within a city, a lot of the soil is contaminated. And, and rather than try and tackle that, then the easiest thing to do is just build raised beds um, and then get some soil imported in uh, to fill them up. Uh, but nobody really knew where that was from. Um, so we had a kind of two-week program um, of workshops and talks and um, practical activities and, and just actually tried to create a space where we could find out from people what, what was their interest in soil and, and what would they like to see happen about the soil in the city. What was most inspiring about this project was the physical reconnections that it brought to people, getting people to put their hands into the soil and, as Alex says, to play wanted to get people kind of really physically engaged with the soil because um, we actually found that people enjoyed having the permission to play with it. You know, it's something that within the context of a city is often, it's, it's often hidden uh, and when it does emerge and it, it's seen as something that's dirty um, and, and you're not really kind of thought to, you don't really kind of, uh, that it's something you want to play with or investigate. Um, so people really enjoyed that permission to play with it, to touch it, to smell it, to feel it, to, um, you know, maybe find out a bit more about it. What kind of soil is it? So we kind of did, we learned ourselves about doing some kind of very basic soil tests, you know. Um, is it a kind of a sandy soil? Is it a clay soil? Um, and what might that mean? I wondered what it was that people so loved about this physical interaction. What makes people like Colin and Ginny come out and garden in public? And what makes people like Tillicate and Alex want to create communities around this dark, mulchy, wormy stuff? I think part of it is um, we have very little opportunity to play as adults. Um, we're, we're, we feel like we need the, the permission to play. And I think kind of having the, the framework of a, a kind of a creative project kind of allows people an opportunity to to try things that they might not otherwise people also feel uh, a lack of connection to kind of the natural environment in general and i think kind of literally putting your hands in soil and kind of rooting yourself earthing yourself into the soil is is something that people are quite interested in as well you'll be at the bench by now with a view over the Usburn. This area, by the way, was another one that was overgrown before Colin came out with his secateurs and rake. So let's have a think. When was the last time you got your hands dirty with soil? Would you even allow yourself to now in this overly sanitised world? Do you have a relationship with the organic material, the bacteria, the worms and the bugs who do the majority of the hard work for the food you eat to be grown? And even if you did, would it make a difference to the global picture? Most people don't have a direct, tactile, daily relationship with the soil, of course, because most of us don't have the space or the time. So one movement that's tried to readdress this lack, other than artists, is the group of people developing community gardens and land trusts. We're going to take a walk around one in a moment, Oosburn City Farm, 
but we're also going to hear from a number of others. So we're going to walk now, and although you can't see them from here, we're going to head towards some stairs that are diagonally down towards your left. Be careful of your footing on the grass and mud. Follow the path down, and then you'll see the steps onto Lime Street. When there, head left again, past 36 Lime Street and seven storeys on the other side of the road, and the Oosburn Trust on this side, and stop at the benches just below and to the right of the Ship Inn Vegan Pub. As we walk, and before we hear from the community gardeners, let's find out a bit more about soil and the global agricultural crises we face. The biggest problem on the planet is row crop. So row crop is extremely detrimental. And I was talking about soil organic matter levels earlier. So when you talk about soil organic matter levels on tillage, you could be down on two, two to three percent and getting lower. And that's when you go to places like the United States and you see millions of acres that are just dead and they were just row cropped to death. And their soil organic matter levels are below 1%. So that's Kevin Kennedy, who's co-founder of Anu Dairy, a regenerative agriculture and certified organic food company that's about developing solutions to increase soil organic and carbon levels, along with traditional chemical-free organic farming. Kevin doesn't hold back when talking about something he's clearly passionate about, and he explains it very clearly. Industrial agriculture doesn't look after our soil at all. What it does is pure greed-driven resource extraction. Crops are always going to be difficult because crops really, like they tend to really mine. You know, that's what we talk about in regenerative agriculture. It's, it's mining, resource, it's resource mining. That's what you're doing. Like. That's right. Industrial agriculture mines the soil. The alternative, regenerative agriculture, thinks about soil not as a resource for making profit, but as a valuable part of our planet that needs nurturing and which gifts us food if we take care of it in return. There's so much degraded land on the planet so much degraded land i think it's ways for the big thing is finding out how can we start re repairing what's already in bits um like there's in the southeast of america there's nine million acres that are already dead and can't be used um, and i know that alan savory has talked about a huge part of that 70 percent of the great of grasslands are degraded across the planet um out in africa huge amounts of land that's degraded and can't grow anything so what i would say about the world is it's like 75% of the people of the farm of the food produce are small farmers. And I, that's where we, we are. We're small farmers. I want to start with small farmers. Yeah. Um, can communities become self-sustainable? And part of the approach to that is really understanding what's in our soil or how the soil functions. And when you get into that, it will blow your mind. Let's get back down and see what is supposed to happen. So that kind of, you know, it takes you into the soil microbiome. It takes you into things like... Uh, the fungal systems that happen that are vascular mycorrhizal fungi you know this is this network that exists in the soil that's broken when you plow the soil so trying not to plow kind of no-till agriculture um, and that's like the super highway is the internet it's this crosstalk and it allows this release of um, things like phosphorus and stuff are solubilized by fungi in the soil but plowing it breaks it up but when you kind of start paying attention to those things that are happening, look at the fungal layer, look at the bacterias, um, and then look at the, the levels above that. And uh, yeah, I think if you do the same thing with the human body, it's all the same. And Helen Woodcock from the Kindling Trust agrees. So I went and did this master's in, in farming and the soil thing was fascinating. And you just like, I honestly got totally obsessed by it and would talk to people for like ages about soil and about all these different things. And I, I think it is, I don't know, I, do, I, I was at risk of becoming a total soil nerd, but I, but I also think it is really fascinating for people. 
The Kindling Trust is a community group in Manchester that has been working since 2007 for a just and ecologically sustainable society. And they do that by working with communities, farmers, activists and policymakers, using food as an agent for environmental and social change. Their work is guided by the concept of food sovereignty. And that's not just food security, where people have enough to eat. It's a broader concept about access, knowledge, cooperation and respect for people, but also for the food and for the soil and the water used to grow it. Let Helen explain. So I suppose it's a system where everybody is everybody is respected and everybody is valued from uh, the people producing the food uh, to the people who have to deliver it, to the people cooking it, to everyone eating it, so all of us, <laughs> I suppose. And there isn't someone in the middle taking all the money and shafting everyone else. Uh, like you know the sort of few corporations that seem to be doing that so I suppose it's a community owned food system you know the growers and the uh, everyone but it is also a food system that completely respects the soil as much as and it's about acknowledging that the soil is you know in grower terms is the gold basically it's about if we don't look after the soil then we then we have no food and we have you know it'd be very difficult to have fresh healthy food unless we look after the soil and the producers so how can we respect soil well if we're not producers ourselves then we can support those producers who are nurturing and feeding the soil for us not simply mining it for profit up here people such as northeast organic growers and their veg box scheme and also the gibbside community garden who we'll be hearing about in a minute you might be at the ship in by now so take a seat here and look around at the greenery around you, thinking about the food that you get served in that pub or the food that gets grown just over there in front of you at the Usburn City Farm. So I suppose the difference between how organic growers uh, are, are looking after this, are growing, are growing food or producing food, uh, and the way that other that non-organic growers produce food is that we would um, try and feed the soil and keep the soil life and the you know all of the all of the little bugs in the soil and everything in the soil uh, as healthy as possible to to then feed the plant whereas a lot of non-organic growers would be putting chemicals in the soil to feed the plant directly um and that yeah so so that's completely opposite to to how we feel it should work so that's a little takeaway for you Perhaps one of the reasons why we need to buy organic and local and keep reducing our reliance on the big supermarkets or cheap eats is that in that way we can play a key role in feeding our common resource, the soil. And the reason why I mention the fact that the Ship Inn is a vegan pub is just to give a little provocation to the fact that you can produce food at this level in ways less dependent on large-scale animal agriculture too. When we understand that animal agriculture is the biggest contributor to climate change, then anything that helps us reduce our addiction to meat and dairy is a good thing. Let Helen explain again how they do it. Um, we would use, so we're, we're vegan organic growers or stock-free growers, uh, depending on how you want to say it. But and So the way that we would nurture the soil would be um, to use green manures, uh, so um, clovers or you know different nitrogen fixes um and we would also try and use green waste so we would use a lot of compost uh of rather than animal uh waste we would be using kind of uh you know what people don't use in their kitchens or whatever and we would try and put as much in as we're taking out 
For me, this is a model to extend our compassion into interesting places. Not only to our fellow humans, and not even only to non-humans either, but actually to the organic, the soil. Remember, all that life in just a teaspoon. I mean, we've not even talked about how amazing worms are yet. Of course, not everyone agrees on the stock-free or vegan methods. For Kevin Kennedy, cows and ruminants are an essential part of the regenerative system. And at the moment, in some places around the world, that may be the only solution to food shortages and degraded land. It might be worth saying here that the conversations I had with both Kevin and Ginny both came out with social media arguments where we disagreed on issues. But, modelling a better way to be together, we decided not to argue, but to talk and to learn from each other. What is that if not a composting, commingling, soily, mulchy model of getting on? Anyway, we're going to walk a bit now, around the corner, to the left, and then a jink to the right, round the back of Oosburn City Farm, to meet a couple of these cows that the farm keeps, and then also the pigs. Animals who will, I imagine, at some point be slaughtered, but whose manure goes into the soil on the farm. So take that little path to your left, but then jink right with the cow's paddock on your left. You can stop and greet them if they're still out, or walk around the farm with the river now on your right. At the bridge, go right as if doing a circle, but then jink right so that you're now outside the pigsty, the river behind you. That's the river ooze. You'll know it by the smell when you get to the pigs. Again, depending on what time you do the walk, they may be away for the night. But once you're there, stop for another little bit. I think in a way it's to try and take the production side a bit more seriously. So that's Mick Marston, who spent his life working with and for community gardens, including the Usburn City Farm. Because in a, in a lot of situations, in a lot of places, people see them more as education, social, health and well-being projects. Nothing wrong with that. The land has got a fantastic therapeutic role to play animals as well, you know what I mean? So, in a way, the difficulty is if, you, if you've got a very small amount of land, it's, you know, allotments are not going to feed the world. And to a certain extent have not changed the world you know mm. the, in good old UK we've had allotments for many many years they've been in decline and they've come back but in a way it's not really changed anything you know the agribusiness still continues seed sovereignty is still a nightmare you know seeds are controlled by four big businesses you know what I mean so in a way all these things have been happening but what are any have any changes taken place mm. And I think the role of the sort of projects that we're involved in, and we are very small, is it showing it can be done on a small scale and showing it can be done at a community level. And he's right. Although it may be fun to bring your kids here to meet the animals and learn about growing and have some produce in the cafe, if we're going to go deeper in our thinking and practices about our soil and our food, we need to reconsider our relations with growing practices, with the production. On what scale do we engage? Mick is currently working with the Gibside Community Farm on a scale bigger than here, but not, of course, at the industrial level. And, uh, you know, big is des definitely not beautiful. It <laughs> is, yeah. Uh, yeah. But small's difficult. So I, I kind of felt that we wanted to ramp it up. You know, when I talk to people now about we've got 15 acres, people are like, oh, that's a lot of land. It's not really. Someone else working in this field is Sean Casey, back on the other side of the river. So here we are in Scotswood Community Garden. We're um, stood on our platform next to in the in the middle of the garden, uh, next to our big pond. It's 
surrounded by trees. Um, I like to think of this place as a little oasis, a sort of safe space um, in you know in the middle of the West End of Newcastle, which can be quite you know it's uh, not what you'd associate with a lovely soft uh, green space like this. But uh... and for someone like Sean, his enthusiasm and the work his community garden can do is incredible in helping individuals and communities grow, not only food but as thriving networks of relationships, not unlike our mycorrhizal fungi, that network of spreading nutrients between the roots of our growing things. Here's our little haven with birds singing, we've got there's wildflowers, there's uh, newts and frogs around and um, it's so so the garden's two and a half acres, we've got lots lots going on in the garden. There's woodland, there's forest garden, there's veg plots, there's and there are ponds wildflower meadows um, and yeah we for 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 a little uh, community garden we pack quite a punch in terms of uh, of uh, habitats and wildlife and and, uh, and sort of green spaces yeah I feel so grateful myself to be to be working here and uh, it's yeah I think these value in in our urban areas in cities you know these green spaces like this so you know, parks are wonderful, but that kind of they're very sort of manicured spaces often, mm. and having a little bit of wildness um, is is great for people to feel a bit. You know, and the children you can see that in the the school group, the forest school groups that come here, children really respond to the sort of sense of freedom that can you can get uh, coming to these wilder spaces. And I would encourage everyone to come and come and visit us in there, see for yourselves what we've got here. That can be lacking in a lot of modern life is sort of feeling rooted in in your community. I think we all benefit and respond well to that when we, where we can find somewhere we belong. Yeah, and of course, all of this is built on the soil. Sean and the Scotswood Garden practice low tillage, so allowing the networks of fungi to do its work and for the worms to do the digging for us. Our soil feels very alive in terms of beneficial you know worms and insects that are, are uh, in the soil and, yeah. and I think the results are there. Being in touch with the seasons I think is so important and our indoor lives nowadays we don't feel the change of the seasons we don't just to, to hear the birds sing and, and it, can, it can be as simple as that just to be outside um, and gardening is a great tool to work with people of all different abilities it's the rewards are so tangible, you know, you, you sow a seed, you watch it germinate, you care for it, you look after it, hopefully then you it grows into a beautiful flower which you can appreciate or, or a nice, you know, some beans to, to pick and eat and to take people through that whole process is, it's often, you know, people have never dug up a potato and eaten it and uh, to for someone to, to do that whole process, I think it's really special and, and brings people back close to where our food comes from and 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 that can that can lead to all sorts of benefits I think if people start thinking more about about food production and where yeah how we look after the soil so you'll buy the pigs now or their foraging grounds so now we're going to complete the final leg of this walk and go back to the bridge and cross it to the left and then follow the road straight over and we're going to go up the stairs that lead to the Cumberland Arms there's seats two-thirds of the way up so you can stop and take a rest here or the benches outside of one of Newcastle's most iconic public houses. But the place we're heading to is behind the pub, 
to a new community garden art space called Lot. You'll know it when you see it. It's got a blue fence and has a wooden pallet on the outside with the letters L-O-T on it. And inside, well, lots and lots of wood, including a bandstand and a new shed put up by Maxi, the founder. But on the way there, we're going to hear a little bit more about seeds and seed sovereignty, which Mick mentioned, and which, as you can probably guess, is pretty similar to food sovereignty, as Helen from the Kindling Trust explained earlier. So let's walk. To be honest, it was just through a newspaper article initially. Um, the whole project has kind of started by reading about the, the flooding in the global seed vault um, in whenever it was last year. So that's Dave Lisser, who, along with Lucian Anderson, are more of the commissioned artists in this deep adaptation programme. Their project, Last Ditch Attempt, has seen them hand-build a tandem cargo bike to travel around Newcastle and Gateshead, distributing wonderfully shaped dodecahedrons that are also seed pods. And sort of, you know, thankfully, you know, none of their stocks were kind of ruined, but just there was a very simple line from someone from the Norwegian government who kind of expressed uh, surprise that the permafrost would start to melt. And it was kind of like, you know, I think they said this wasn't in our plans. <laughs> it's like, well, no, of course it isn't. <laughs> um, but and again, I don't know, I just thought it was quite, quite surprising because in my mind, the Norwegian government are quite quite good at thinking long term. Mm. You know, their I don't know what the name of it, but you know, their royal bond thing. Oh, the sovereign fund, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they kind of show an example of thinking more long term than most governments. Mm. Um, and this just led into a load of research about about seeds, actually. And yeah, I mean, like six months ago, I hadn't heard of. F1 hybrid seeds, I don't know what open pollinated meant, I didn't, I, you know, I'm very much a beginner, but I, I, I was clueless then. <laughs> so seed sovereignty reclaims seeds and biodiversity as commons for the public good, away from the hands of the big industrial corporates such as Monsanto. What Dave and Lucian are exploring is this sense that we have the right to breed and exchange diverse open source seeds ourselves, which can be saved and which are not patented genetically modified, owned or controlled by the seed giants. And that's what Dave and Lucian wanted to explore, that we don't need anyone to give us permission to shape our visions of the future from the soil upwards. And the main, the main idea of, obviously, you know, the seed vault in Svalbard is not the only one. <laughs> you know, there are a few around the place. But it kind of, and we were kind of thinking, well, maybe we should just make you know, a plethora of <laughs> seed sharing networks rather than these kind of, these vaults, these silos, which yeah. to be fair are, you know, very well controlled. You know, they know what they're doing. <laughs> but kind of just a bit of an alternative, alternative way of thinking about it. Uh, we kind of took our inspiration from the way that like terrorist cells work in that there's no central command as such in some of them. So therefore, if, if something gets taken out, the rest of the network still continues. So rather than a, yeah, all the seeds going to one place and then being distributed everywhere else. What if there were just, you know, an egalitarian network of, of seed sharers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just thought it seemed like a nice, well, a good, a good idea to be yeah. honest. Yeah. It probably is happening, but we just, well, you're we thought we'd join in. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's and they did that by heading out into town on their bike. Here's Lucian and then Dave again, and then a little bit of Mick too. 
I mean, I had no idea what to expect really before we went out on the Saturday. That kind of idea of how much control you have over something, how you, how and whether you kind of measure its success, and we talked about the idea of not even trying to like monitor what happened, just trusting people will go away, and some of them will grow the seeds, and some of them, some of them will keep these objects because they like them and store them for us effectively. Um, but yeah, it, it was interesting. Most people seem to say, "Oh yeah, I've got an allotment," or "I know someone has an allotment, I'm gonna go and." Have a go at growing them. And yeah, or they give it to their uncle or their, well, yeah, you know, their dad or someone yeah. who, who yeah. does grow stuff. Um, uh, I would say probably we only got really down to the kind of the crux of it with like a few people really. Yeah, because we're in the streets, people were passing through. So you'd have, you know, you'd have like a minute long conversation really, two minutes maybe. There's a, I don't know, a few people who had heard about, well, knew a bit more about seeds and about seed sovereignty and about the difficulty of. Uh, yeah, kind of sourcing, well, and biodiversity as well, really. I mean, yeah, that was, was kind of a, a little bit of our kind of aim from the start. We, what did we say? We said part spectacle, yeah. part solution. Yeah. I'm yeah. not sure we we're particularly solution, but we are spectacle, Definitely that's spectacle. for sure. Well, that's, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really important. It re- you know, you've got to catch people. You know, keep cycling Northumberland Street and Gateshead High Street, you know, just... Because that, that's where people are going to be, um, you know. Because people were actually stopping us, weren't they, as well, and being like, what's this about? So yeah, yeah, we, you know, we had, a, we had a place that we were going to get to. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. Yeah. And you got yeah. stopped along the way. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which good. was nice. I was really, really happy about that. Yeah. And one person just walked past and like, ran the hand over all the seed pods and just didn't say anything. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just sort of stroked them. Just had to, like, touch them. And Dave and Lucien are bringing their bike and seeds here to Lot. Are you up the stairs yet? On the weekend of the 28th and 29th of April to spend time in the community garden that has been created by second year fine arts undergraduate student from Newcastle University, Maxie Lay. And I was actually looking for a space which was like going to be an exhibition and I thought the work would just sit a lot better outdoors and I was going to sort of go for somewhere in like Northumberland somewhere Um, but then I kind of like was like there are so many kind of green spaces or even brownfield sites whatever here in Newcastle and I was like why don't I just do something with a piece of land and she has the land is actually part of the Usburn Farm Trust and so there's a good relationship already in place between here and where we've just been certainly in terms of food production and creative spaces joining together and I kind of just decided that I wanted to make a proper project out of it rather than just an exhibition I didn't just want to come in and then leave it again I wanted to sort of stay here and keep the project going, something that could sort of last for like people here in the community or also that the art community, but kind of both and I don't necessarily want it just to be like fine art. I kind of want it to be more like cross disciplinary and a meeting place for people who aren't necessarily just artists. Maxie's an incredibly impressive young woman, creating a space here that I feel ties together all of the things that we've been thinking about on this particular journey. Art, community growing things, being outside, class, and of course, the soil. So um, there are three raised beds um, on this side here, um, which are gonna be sort of, I think it's gonna be mainly like potatoes, just to go back down to Usburn Farm, because they have their cafe there. They make a lot of soup and sort of sell that sort of thing for charity. And I think I wanna, yeah, put potatoes in, bring them back down so they can have all those. Um, So that 
hopefully it will be a sort of permaculture garden but right now because there's so much to do <laughs> it's just a garden um with a lot of mess around it but there's um the orchard which um will have like a underneath it flatbed which um yeah hopefully then we'll start pruning the trees properly and hopefully eventually they'll come back to sort of life because i don't think they've been bearing fruit mm. the past few years do you know what they just are been left um yeah i think they're just apples pears and then I think there's some plums. I don't know which ones are which, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there'll be like a community garden that anybody can come and, you know, spend some time in, work in, whatever they really want to do. Um, then the space that we're building at the moment will be a sort of storage. I guess it's our first um, space, like structure. So it will be mainly storage at the moment. Um, but I want it to be a sort of workshop space for... Um, probably like some like cooking workshops like preservative workshops like um we've been doing a lot of that before we had some exhibitions here before which were sort of about food and um preserving them yeah. <laughs> uh so that space yeah will be a workshop space and eventually when i get more funding hopefully there'll be like another space over on that side which will be like an uh, exhibiting space um and keep that one slightly cleaner sort of a little bit more yeah. <laughs> unlike this one which I can imagine is going to yeah. get very messy quite quickly and there's an open invite from Maxi to all of you come down join in be part of this new community and that's really why we ended up here today isn't it I think that pulling all the pieces together of this concept to restore our soil as a necessary part of our lives is that we can think of both creative and pragmatic responses to how degraded and in crisis our soils are what Maxi is doing here as the Open Jar Collective did in Glasgow, and which a bunch of artists and activists have done in Bristol when they wrote their declarations for the soils of Bristol, is bring art, activism, gardening, politics and community together. In fact, everyone I spoke to has been doing that right here under our noses in Newcastle and Gateshead. So we're at the end of this walk now. Now better to do than enjoy a lot and then perhaps nip to the Cumberland for some refreshment. I want to finish by saying thank you to everyone who gave up their time for me to interview for this podcast and also to you for listening. And if you're listening to this in April or May, then there's an ongoing programme of deep adaptation events up until May the 26th and especially three things that I want to bring to your attention. The next and final walk of this podcast on the 12th of May entitled Restore the Climate. Then the final, final podcast event on May 17th, which is a live recording inviting you to all come and have your say. And then the culmination of the whole Deep Adaptation project on May the 18th with our springboard event to make an intention to work together for the future sustainability of our cities. Please do come along and get involved. So I'm going to leave the last words to one of both Tilika Markham's and mine's favourite authors, the biologist, botanist and Native American activist Robin Wall Kimmerer. Restoring land without restoring relationship is an empty exercise, she writes in her book Braiding Sweetgrass. It is relationship that will endure and relationship that will sustain the restored land. Reconnecting people and the landscape is as essential as re-establishing proper hydrology or cleaning up contaminants. It is medicine for the earth. So, let's take our medicine then. Thank you, and please do go and stick your hands in something seedy and dirty. <laughs>